Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one originally published on February 16th, 2021, and it was called Gold, Medal of the Sun. Uh, I guess this was all about gold, right? I've, I've sort of forgotten this. Oh, no, wait, it's coming back to me now. Yeah, yeah, we we done a, a previous one uh, uh, that dealt with gold a little bit. Uh, uh-huh. That one was uh, what the, the 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 tide of gold, and this mm. was kind of a follow up to that with more gold related uh, science, uh, gold nanoparticles, um, history of extracting gold from the earth, that sort of thing. Oh, okay, we're doing a great job selling it, folks. You're gonna love it. <laughs> it's gold. We don't even have to sell it. You know you want it. It's gold. Have a listen. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're bringing you kind of a grab bag episode that was inspired by an email we got from a listener not too long ago. It was from a listener named Kate, uh, who wrote in to tell us about how she works sometimes in a, uh, I forget exactly what kind of laboratory it was, but that she works sometimes with uh, nanoparticles, like gold nanoparticles in the lab, and suggested that we look into doing an episode on uh, gold and gold nanoparticles. And we were like, hey, that's Sounds interesting. So today we're rolling out the buffet card of uh, of gold, gold nanoparticles, and things that struck us as interesting. Yeah. So um, first of all, I do want to mention an earlier episode. This was um, not that long ago, actually. It's just from July 2020. Mm-hmm. We did an episode titled "The Tide of Gold," uh, which ultimately had to do with. Um, uh, a con, I believe, right? Yeah, I thought that was a fun episode. It was actually about a a scam that was run by a clergyman named Prescott Jernigan at a uh, against a community on the coast of Maine in the late 1890s. I think it was 1897, and he pretended that he had created a machine that would be able to extract endless quantities of gold from the seawater, mm. and he did this whole thing. Like the the scam was quite elaborate. He Bought, uh, he bought some local property on the coast and, and set up a fake processing facility and hired tons of people and got all these investors and then eventually just skipped town with the money. But then we talked about how he actually wasn't the last person to try to extract gold from the sea. There had been real attempts to extract gold from the sea. And there is actually uh, an appreciable amount of gold in the seawater, but uh, the actual attempts to build factories to extract it have always proved that uh, it costs more to get the gold out than the value of the gold you harvest. Now, also in that episode, we just did a, a basic primer about what gold is and where it comes from. So I'm going to real quick just go through the basics of that. But if you want more details, I would just refer you back to that 2020 episode, The Tide of Gold. Or just hang around because we'll probably run it as a vault episode sometime uh, in the next several months. So anyway, gold is a relatively rare element compared to the you know the commonplace uh, elements of hydrogen and oxygen and iron, etc. Uh, but obviously, veins of it can be found in Earth's crust. So where does gold actually come from? Well, there's a you know there's a lot of uncertainty here, but basically, you know, there, there's evidence to indicate that gold is produced in extremely violent stellar phenomena. Uh, you know, it is it is the, the stuff of the stars, quite fittingly, as we as we get into the topic here today. Uh, but there uh, it, there have been a few different theories. Uh, there's like the late veneer hypothesis that argues that gold and other specific materials were added into the Earth's crust roughly 3.8 billion years ago via a bombardment of iridium-rich meteorites. 
Um, and then there's a, there, there's a, there's some other hypotheses out there as well. Um, for instance, there's the rival magma ocean hypothesis that argues that gold was here all along. Um, but at, at any rate, gold is, you know, when you look at some of the ways that, that, that we find it and the way it interacts with other uh, substances, it does feel a little weird, a little alien. It does feel like something that, that, that came down from on high, you know? And it absolutely is, though. It's funny to think about. I guess this has come up in a few episodes in the past few months about how when you start to look into the origins of any individual element, it's always like, mm-hmm. wow, that's crazy. Now, of course, the idea that gold comes from extremely violent stellar phenomena, either through nucleosynthesis, through a supernova, so when a star is literally like exploding and coming apart at the end of its life cycle, or uh, through the collision of neutron stars. I mean, the things that are phenomena that are so violent and energetic, you cannot imagine them. They won't fit in your brain. Uh, that's amazing. But then again, the origin of every element is amazing because like it was either that or it was a lighter element that was formed as a star was like nearing the end of its life cycle and started fusing heavier and heavier elements and eventually exploded. Or it is a particle that is original to the universe since the big bang, as would be the case with, with like hydrogen particles. So I guess no matter what element you're talking about, its origins are mind boggling, but the specific origins of gold are one of the mind boggling ones. It's like, yeah, you, you something horrible had to happen long, long ago before humans existed to put all this gold into the dust that gathered through space and eventually coalesced in our solar system and some of it ended up on this planet. Right. And and so while a lot of different uh, materials that, that pop up in the earth, you know, it just feels, it, it can often feel like, well, that's just something you find in the dirt. You know, there's, a, yeah. of course, there's some metal in there, there's some rocks in there, there's some minerals in there. But gold is, is interesting in that, you know, it, it is, it, it sparkles like, like, like nothing else, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, since ancient times, people have been coming across it, uh, especially uh, glimpsing it in streams and uh, in riverbeds. Um, so it, humans have a long history with gold. And uh, so in order to research a bit about, uh, about humanity's history working with gold, um, I looked uh, to a book I frequently turn to, The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World uh, by Brian M. Fagan, which uh, <laughs> has a number of different um, uh, selections in there where he's dealing with with specific technological advancements from the ancient world and generally um, partnering with a particular expert uh, in a related field. Uh, though Fagan, of course, uh, has has written quite a bit on ancient technology, just in general, there are a lot of academic papers uh, out there, and we've referred to some of them on the show before. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as pointed out by Brian M. Fagan and Paul T. Craddock, who specializes in ancient metal uh, technology, gold pops up relatively late in the archaeological record of the old world. While evidence of copper dates back to the 8th millennium BCE in the Middle East, gold doesn't pop up until uh, 5000 BCE in what is now Bulgaria. Uh, and it pops up in the Americas during the 2nd millennium BCE. Now, the oldest gold artifacts that we, we know of are Neolithic artifacts from a cemetery at Varna, Bulgaria. And it's a variety of gold adornments, including ringlets, discs, and necklaces. Joe, I included a photo here for you to look at. But if anyone out, out there wants to see this themselves, uh, just do a search for Varna, V-A-R-N-A, gold or gold artifacts, and you'll see the skeleton and these various gold implements uh, that were buried with them. Now, is this image we're seeing do you know if this is actually as it was found like in situ or has this been arranged for a 
for this this particular photo looks arranged um mm-hmm. uh, i've seen some some photographs of of it as they actually pulled it from the earth and uh and, and it's it's really interesting because of course the gold is very uh very shiny like it's instantly recognizable as gold mm-hmm. now gold is almost always found as a metal rather than an ore it typically contains five to thirty percent silver and it was originally used without refining it sometimes with copper added but then in the, with the introduction of gold coinage in the 7th century BCE, and this would have been in, um, in Lydia, um, this, this introduced new requirements. You needed guaranteed weight. You needed guaranteed purity. Thus, refining was necessary to separate the silver from the gold. And the process here is, um, is parting, by which gold dust or foil is heated in a pot with salt. Hmm. So it's, you, we got a stew going, baby. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, This is what um, uh, Fagan and Craddock uh, had to say uh, to to summarize this quote. The chlorine and ferric chloride vapors uh, so generated removed the silver from the gold as volatile silver chloride, leaving behind pure gold. Okay, so it was creating a chemical reaction with the, I guess, the sodium chloride in the salt where the silver under the heating would bond with the chlorine and it would evaporate off. Yeah. And so as gold coins spread, so too did this method of refinement. And it wouldn't change for roughly 2,000 years and, in, and, lo- and for longer in other parts of the world, but certainly uh, in regard to you know, Europe and the Mediterranean, the Middle East. You know, it would be 2,000 years before uh, it changed much. Mm-hmm. Now, a uh, note, simple cast and beaten gold can be accomplished without specialized metal tools. Uh, more sophisticated gold working wasn't possible till the Bronze Age um, by 2500 BCE in the Near East. Now, meanwhile, in South America, um, gold workers there didn't refine the gold, but they were able to control the composition by adding, via hammering or casting, copper to the natural gold-silver alloy to produce a metal called tumbaga. And uh, th- what they do is they take it and they treat the surface with astringent chemicals to oxidize the copper. And then they would, re- they would remove this with strong brine or perhaps acidic fruit juices. And then they would burnish the, su- the surface to create a resplendent finish. I didn't realize there'd be so much uh, food-like processes in the, the creation of this jewelry. Yeah. Now, is it true that um, the copper involved when you're mixing copper with gold or with silver and gold, the copper helps strengthen it and make it less malleable because gold in its natural metallic form is actually quite soft, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 interesting because that comes up as as being one of the one of the reasons why we see uh, gold used as in jewelry uh, mm-hmm. throughout through human history. I mean, for starters, it's beautiful, and we'll get into some of the symbolic reasons for its beauty uh, and why it catches our eye. But also, what else are you going to use gold for? You know, you you can't really make a useful gold tool because it's going to, to, to bend and, uh, and it's, it's, it's just not going to hold up to the pressures required. Likewise, mm. you can't make a gold sword that's going to be sharp enough and strong enough to use in combat. Um, but it lends itself well to pure decoration or to decorating a particularly important sword or its hilt anyway, uh, that sort of thing. Now, I think gold would actually become practically useful in ways that couldn't necessarily have been predicted earlier once we get into the age of electronics, because uh, uh, gold, of course, has very important uh, conductive properties. 
Yeah, it's interesting how for for so much of human history, gold is this thing that is absolutely valuable and uh, and desired and is used, uh, uh, you know, as as a means of 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 trading with other people and and, and determining wealth. And yet, it didn't really have any uses for the most part. Uh, and well, there are some exceptions to that, but no real uses until we get into the modern world where we can actually look at electronic uses for gold. Now, one of the advantages of gold and one, one of the reasons that it's always been favored as a jewelry metal is that, it, uh, is that gold occurs as nuggets, dust, uh, or veins and does not have to be converted from complex mineral ores. Uh, deposits of gold can also be hunted out via spotting those glittering specks of gold in rivers and streams. Mm-hmm. Um, very eye-catching. And the reason for this is interesting because gold is also highly resistant to chemical tarnishing or corrosion. And that's why gold can spend thousands of years exposed in a stream bed uh, and remain visible. Yeah. I mean, many other metals naturally lose their luster when they're just exposed to the atmosphere. You know, they yeah. react with gases in the air or with water. Uh, of course, you would notice how quickly iron rusts. I mean, iron that's exposed to the air does not maintain a lustrous finish for very long at all. And the same is true of all kinds of metals that you would commonly encounter in the world. They can take on a kind of dull appearance pretty quickly through reaction just with what's around them. And, and people in the ancient world noticed this. They picked mm-hmm. up on this. And, uh, and as you can imagine, various ideas became attached to it. As, uh, as Fagan uh, points out in another section of the book with Jack Ogden, author of 1982's Jewelry in the Ancient World, uh, quote, a gold vessel did not ruin the taste of the soup in life and could remain buried with its deceased owner to serve them in the afterlife and even perhaps transfer some of the metal's longevity. Yeah, so you can imagine how the uh the the idea of gold in some way symbolizing purity or or harmony or or permanence is not just because it looks pretty it's because of the chemical properties that keep it looking pretty you know that it it doesn't tarnish and lose its luster the way other metals do and you you see various uh, symbolism involved too a lot of times silver is seen as the color of the moon but mm-hmm. gold of course is the color of the sun and the uh, the ancient Egyptians uh, even thought of gold as the, the skin of Ra or the skin of Ray, uh, which is especially telling when you think of uh, gold sheets and foil. And we'll get into that in a minute here. Mm. Um, and, and, of course, there are plenty of other examples of, of gold in mythology that are pretty interesting. Uh, we have to remember that in Greek mythology, Zeus himself becomes a shower of gold in order to impregnate uh, a mortal. Oh, yeah, that's in the story of Danae, who is imprisoned by her father, Acrisius uh, of, of Argos. And Zeus comes down in the form of a shower of gold, and they conceive the child who becomes Perseus, the mm-hmm. uh, the ostensible hero of the Perseus uh, and Medusa story. But uh, according to our favorite retellings, maybe the villain of the story, you know, depends on, depends on yeah. the details. <laughs> Now, one of the interesting things about uh, some of the other st- uh, stories of Greek mythology that involve gold is it's easy to just sort of dismiss it as like, okay, you make something gold and then it's notable, right? A golden mm-hmm. helmet. Okay, it's magic, whatever. Sure. Um, a golden fleece. All right, it's like a normal fleece except it's golden. Well, um, that may that particular case may be connected to the use of fleece, unsheared sheep hide, to pan for gold in streams. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. I never imagined that, though. It's funny. I have thought before about uh, often when I'm cooking in the kitchen, a thought that comes to my head is, uh, what did ancient people use for a colander? <laughs> but I guess I guess cloth would be a, a pretty uh, reasonable choice there, right? Yeah, it would apparently cling to the, um, to the unsheared sheep hide. Mm-hmm. Now, another uh, tale uh, that we think of, instantly think of regarding gold in Greek mythology is, of course, the myth of Midas's golden touch. Mm-hmm. Um, so King Midas of Phrygia, uh, the story goes, he, he finds this drunken satyr, uh, just like just really drunk. Even for a satyr, I think the satyr's drunk uh, <laughs> and needs nursing back to health. Now, are satyrs, obviously, they're going to be party animals, but are they party, the kind of party animal that can hold their liquor or the kind that can't? Well, I'm guessing they probably could, but they won't, you know, because they're, oh, they're yeah. all about, you know, excess, right? Yeah, let's cut loose. And, of course, their master is Dionysus, mm-hmm. and, um, and Midas recognizes this, and so, you know, he nurses, uh, he nurses this creature back to health, and then Dionysus offers him a reward. And so Midas is like, well, I've got pretty much everything I need. I'm, I'm rich and all, but I sure do love gold, and I would like to have more of it. And so the god gives him the golden touch. And I think we all know how the rest of the story goes. The main portion of this story, of course, is that everything he touches turns to gold, which is great until he goes to grab some grapes to eat, until he throws himself on his bed, and it turns into unforgiving gold. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it's better than if, if your bed were made out of iron. But still, as far as like things to sleep on, still not comfortable. And then when he touches his own daughter, uh, he turns her to solid gold. So he goes back to Dionysus and says, hey, I, I take it back. Just, I, I, I don't want this golden touch anymore. And so Dionysus tells him to wash his hands in the river Pactolus near the coast of modern Turkey. And indeed, the gold drains from his fingertips in the moving water. So I think you can all see it now. Moving water. Yes, there's apparently a connection here to traditions of panning for gold as well. And indeed, the river in question once contained electrum, gold and silver. So it was a river of riches. And I know because I just looked it up after having said something that was totally wrong. Uh, electrum is actually an alloy of gold and silver that uh, may, may have trace amounts of other metals in it, such as copper. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I thought Electrum was amber, uh, and I'm glad I, I stopped and checked. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think I really had, had knew about this connection. I mean, I, I obviously, one attaches themselves to the um, to the basic message of the myth, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for, because mm-hmm. the reality of it could be a, a curse. Uh, but anyway, this is this is right, right interesting. And if anyone out there wants to see a really cool animated version of this, um, the... Um, the, the Ted Ed series, uh, which are which are all these animated educational shorts, they have one on Midas that's uh, that does a great job telling the story and has some uh, amusing uh, visual choices. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a great story that works on multiple levels. Obviously, you have the you know the standard monkey's paw kind of be careful what you wish for interpretation. It works on that level. Uh, it works in saying you know there's more to life than riches, of course, but then it also. I think it works pretty well as an illustration of the ways that we can become alienated and deranged by over-dedication to the acquisitive process. You know, Mm -hmm. like if if you are overly focused on acquiring money, like I think it's quite clear that this has potential to ruin other aspects of your life. Absolutely. (laughs) 
Now, Ogden and Fagan point out that uh, the Near East had advanced gold working techniques for, for the ancient world, such as gold wire, chain, soldering, uh, by 2000 BCE. But it didn't pick up in China till the mid-first millennium BCE, when it was possibly introduced uh, via Russia. Um, jewelry craftsmanship in China mainly revolved around another difficult material, jade, which was essentially unknown in the Mediterranean and the Eastern world. It wasn't traded much. And uh, jade was also used in Central America by 1000 BCE. This is interesting. It, I'm reminded of uh, we just recently recorded a couple of episodes about the Shanghai Jing, the ancient mm -hmm. uh, mythic geography of, of the regions of China. And if you just flip through that, it seems to me like the minerals most often mentioned when they're calling out different mountains and seas are Rialgar and Cinnabar. Yeah. And, and, and then Jade is mentioned a lot as well. It's something yeah. that's desirable. Now, uh, pure gold is one thing, but throughout history, gold craftspeople have also turned to gold plating or gold, uh, you know, gilding. But it wasn't until 1500 BC that we see more durable gilding uh, techniques that don't depend on just simply gluing it in place or bending the gold foil uh, around things. Uh, and of course, one of the big advantages of this is, you know, you don't have to try and craft something out of just gold. You can have something made out of a more durable metal, something made out of wood, and you can put the gold around it. And, you know, this is the kind of craftsmanship we see in a lot of gold artifacts that, that may come to mind when you think about golden wonders. Mm -hmm. Now, Ogden and Fagan also point out that the application of gold foil to silver and copper was largely superseded in Roman times and earlier in China by a process known as amalgam gilding. Uh, so what you do is you mix gold with mercury and slather this all over the metal, and then you heat it up. And the mercury is driven off in a vapor, leaving the gold coating. Ooh, that sounds like uh, that may have created some health problems for some ancient metal workers. Yeah, yeah, the, the mercury vapors um, to be avoided. Um, now, now, the Romans also used imitation gold made from copper zinc alloys, and they would just polish this up to a high shine. Now, another gold purification process popular in Europe uh, in the 10th and 11th centuries is known as cupellation. And to understand this, we have to turn back to silver, the moon metal. Mm. So silver was uh, used in the Middle East since the 5th millennium B.C., but on a much smaller scale. And at this stage, they would have used native silver occurring in rich silver ores that could be directly smelted. But most silver is found in lead ores, so you needed a different method. Yeah, I believe this stuff was referred to as galena. You can see this coming up in ancient texts. Mm. I think we also talked about it in our uh, Cupid's Lead and Arrow episode. But galena was this naturally occurring mineral form of lead, I think lead sulfide. Mm -hmm. But this ore was uh, a really important source of silver in the ancient world. So cupellation uh, is a process. It emerges, seems like somewhere around 1000 BC. D during the process, the lead ore is heated to uh, about 2012 degrees Fahrenheit or 1100 degrees Celsius. And this oxidizes the lead um, to lead oxide, uh, and to quote Craddock and Fagan, quote, which either blew away, poisoning everyone around, <laughs> or formed a molten mass of, um, of, of litharge. Ooh. And then the silver is what remains. And it's interesting, Pliny the Elder described this process in the natural history. This is from Book 33. And this is the Rackham uh, translation, by the way. 
Quote, after these details, let us speak about the varieties of silver ore, the next madness of mankind. Silver is only found in deep shafts and raises no hopes of its existence by any signs, giving off no shining sparkles such as are seen in the case of gold. The ore is sometimes red, sometimes ash-colored. It cannot be smelted except when combined with lead or with the vein of lead, called galena, lead ore, which is usually found running near veins of silver ore. Also, when submitted to the same process of firing, part of the ore precipitates as lead while the silver floats on the surface like oil on water. Oh, what a beautiful uh, image there. Uh, this, I, this occurs in the same section. I just have to read this to it. This has to do with, um, uh, with gold and mercury. Okay. Uh, this is also from Pliny. Same translation. Quote, there is also a mineral found in these veins of silver which contains a humor in round drops that is always liquid and is called quicksilver. It acts as a poison on everything and breaks vessels by penetrating them with malignant corruption. All substances float on its surface except gold, which is the only thing that it attracts to itself. Consequently, it is also excellent for refining gold. As if it is briskly shaken in earthen vessels, it rejects all the impurities contained in it. Now, would this be referring to liquid mercury here? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. you can imagine the little, the little round drops of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you shouldn't play with liquid mercury because it can be highly toxic, but I have to say when I was a kid, uh, I took apart a thermostat one time and I got it the old style mercury switch and oh boy, that was fun to play with, even though you shouldn't. Yeah. Well, I never got to, to play with it, but my, my, my dad was a dentist. And so I remember him showing me some mercury at one point and, uh, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. Now, in medieval Africa, another method of gold purification was in use. And this is really interesting. Um, because it involves glass. Yeah. So as detailed by Mark Walton, co-director of the Center for Scientific Studies in the Arts, and discussed in the Atlas Obscura article, medieval Africans had a unique process for purifying gold with glass by Evan Nicole Brown. Uh, what they did is they took ore and other raw materials, typically found in rivers, and mixed it with glass before heating it up. Wow. So Glass. You, you yeah. wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have, uh, for sure. <laughs> Uh, so gold is inert. So while the various impurities and other materials melted into the glass, the gold remained. And so Walton's team here, they use sand, gold dust, and recycled glass to reproduce the same process. It's pretty neat. Yeah, apparently the context of this ancient process was that it was taking place at a, uh, a West African site known as Tad Mecca, which is now mm. in the Republic of Mali. All right, well, let's turn now to the subject of gold nanoparticles. And, and this would... The, the term gold nanoparticles, of course, would seem to be on the surface entirely connected with the modern age of gold, right? In which the skin of Ra or the skin of Ray has come to serve humans in, uh, in ways beyond mere luster and monetary worth. Right. Well, anything now with the prefix nano smacks of like the modern technological age, you know, the idea right. of nanotechnology. But of course, another way of looking at nanotechnology or nanoparticles is that you can just say, well, there's small particles of something that can be suspended in a liquid, which in some cases have existed for hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah. All you need is a particle of matter that is between one and 100 nanometers in diameter. So that that in and of itself is by no means a modern reality, exclusively a modern reality, and the same can certainly be said of gold nanoparticles. So an author by the name of Chai Chan wrote an excellent article for Science History Institute's Distillations back in 2008, titled From Nanotech to Nanoscience. 
And in it, uh, the author points out that despite the term's popular emergence in the 1970s and 80s, there are plenty of much older technologies that make use of what we think of today as nanotechnology. And um, I'm not going to mention them all here, but there's one that concerns gold. Right. And I think this was actually the example that Kate brought up in her email that inspired us to talk about this today. Yeah. So briefly, what it consisted of is during the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, medieval artisans added gold chloride to molten glass to give it a red tint. And they added silver nitrate to turn it yellow. And recent scientific analysis has revealed that this process works because of gold and silver nanoparticles in the glass reflecting red and yellow light, acting as quantum dots. So some examples of what I guess we would call Renaissance stained glass actually did involve nanotechnology. Right. So uh, it's something to keep in mind because you occasionally like if you hear someone say, well, you know, those Damascus steel swords that they used during the, uh, the Crusades, those had um, those had carbon nanotubes in them. You know, so if you hear that, don't think, oh, well, this is clearly a- ancient alien garbage. No, no, <laughs> it's not. Uh, you don't need um, like modern science to get uh, things like carbon nanotubes and uh, gold nanoparticles. Right. Maybe we'll have to come back to Damascus steel sometime. Yeah, I think I think we should. It would, at the very least, it would make a fun artifact. I think. Now, another place that you often see gold nanoparticles brought up these days is in the realm of medicine, especially experimental or cutting-edge medicine. Uh, And there's one story I came across that was pretty interesting. I'm not sure how it has held up since the time it was published, but I have to mention it for some reasons that will become obvious. What about injections of gold nanoparticles as a form of contraception? Hmm, This has a King Midas-y kind of feel to it already. Yeah. Uh, so there is an original study here that I want to mention by uh, Winching Lee et al., published in Nano Letters in 2013. Uh, it's fairly technical, so I'm, I'm relying here mostly on a summary write-up done at the time for Nature Materials by one of my favorite science writers, Philip Ball, who writes a lot of good articles about physics and chemistry. And Ball opens by saying, you know, there are a number of potential uses for metallic nanoparticles in medicine, uh, some that are already being used, some that are being rolled out as we speak. But uh, one of the more interesting and commonly explored options at the time of this study was to use metallic nanoparticles inside the body as antennae to receive, quote, sub-optical electromagnetic signals. So little metal nanoparticles in the body working as an antenna to receive infrared microwave or radio signals or magnetic fields. And one thing this does is enable what Ball calls, quote, highly localized heating by wireless means. So just one weird and quite fascinating example that that Ball brings up. Um, There is a study by Huang et al. called Remote Control of Ion Channels and Neurons Through Magnetic Field Heating of Nanoparticles, published in Nature Nanotechnology in 2010. And uh, Ball's summary of the study goes like this, quote, Manganese ferrite nanoparticles, six nanometers across, fixed next to calcium ion channels in vivo, meaning in the living organism, in the nematode worm, Kenorhabditis elegans, 
were used to trigger firing of neurons in response to a radio frequency magnetic field, altering the direction of motion of the entire organism. So potentially the control of the behavior of an animal like a worm by injecting metallic nanoparticles and then heating them up with a wireless signal. And Ball also points out that using similar techniques uh, uh, in a paper by Stanley et al., there was a report that uh, researchers were able to control calcium-triggered insulin release in mice. Uh, So you can imagine that if you could use heating of nanoparticles or communication with metallic nanoparticles, uh, especially at localized organs within the body through wireless remote control signals, this could be extremely useful in medicine. So by the time of this study, there is a precedent for using radio or infrared signaling to control metallic nanoparticles injected within the body, often by heating them up. And this could be used to do all kinds of things, such as like targeted thermal destruction of cancer cells, which is, uh, I think, still a live possibility in many cases. But this 2013 study by Lee et al. used the heating of injected metallic nanoparticles for a different purpose, which was to induce sterility in male mice. What that means is the study design involved injecting gold nanorods into rodent testicles and then heating them with near-infrared radiation. And the researchers in this study suggested that a method like this could potentially be useful as a contraceptive for animals such as household pets. Uh, and there are several reasons that they argue in its favor. One is that uh, allegedly, despite involving gold, it is a very, very tiny amount of gold, it would be very cheap, uh, especially cheap compared to you know uh, expensive surgical techniques. So it would not involve surgery. It would be controllable, meaning potentially non-permanent depending on how much heating of the testicular tissue you do. Uh, Apparently, higher levels of heating would render permanent sterility, but lower levels of heating appear somewhat effective at just creating a temporary contraceptive effect. Uh, and also, the they argue that, hey, gold nanoparticles appear to be basically non-toxic within mammalian bodies. Well, you know how vet bills um, are. I, I, if I were to go to the vet and the vet were to tell me, I need you to literally put gold inside this animal, I would be like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but on the serious, serious note, if it were you know, less invasive, and we are talking about a very small, tiny amount of gold, mm-hmm. I could see this working, yeah. But, of course, as I was saying, the import of this research is not just in the specific use case they're describing. Of course, heat in male gonads will inhibit sperm production. Um, but but Ball notes, once again, quote, because heat will inhibit sperm production, it seemed natural to extend earlier work on nanoparticle-based photothermal treatment of cancer cells to this application. So he's drawing the connection there between the use and treatment of, uh, of ablation of, of cancer cells, of destruction of cancerous tissue through, uh, through remote heating of these metallic nanoparticles to the destruction of sperm cells. And of course, gold is a fairly non-reactive metal. It's mostly non-reactive within the body. So injections of gold were at least believed at the time to be relatively non-toxic. I I was poking around and that seems to – gold is still, from what I can tell, believed to be relatively non-toxic as far as internal metals go in the body. Though, of course, uh, there could be some things I, I didn't come across. So I'm not saying like we'll just go consume a bunch of gold. 
Now, another thing that you have to worry about if you are injecting something into the body is how will the immune system respond? And Ball writes that according to this study, uh, coating the gold nanoparticles in polyethylene glycol, quote, enables them to evade the immune system. Lee et al. found that PEG-coated gold nanorods about 40 nanometers long injected into the testes of male mice could raise the temperature up to 45 degrees C when irradiated with an infrared laser. Uh, now, I guess you're wondering, like, would this be painful? Uh, apparently, it would not take a painful amount of heat to be effective. Quote, the degree of heating, although not unduly uncomfortable, essentially destroyed the testes and suppressed spermatogenesis permanently. But milder heating, meaning lower irradiation intensity, impaired sperm production only temporarily. And they also showed that uh, that the 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 mice that had had the temporary thing appeared to regain normal reproductive function after some time had elapsed, and that there were no major changes in their behavior, like eating or aggression or sexual activity after the treatment. So they say that at least in this state, the pr the procedure appeared probably safe and effective. But, of course, there, there are always the caveats. Uh, Ball notes that it's not clear whether the nanorods are ultimately voided from the body. Quote, the concentration in the testes and epididymis declined over time, but the particles seem to accumulate in the spleen and liver. One obviously wonders about an extension to humans. That's certainly the author's long-term goal, and they are confident that it should work in theory. <laughs> huh. It's just, it's, it is kind of... Um it is interesting to think about, you know, we think back to that myth of, uh, of Zeus's golden shower and how, um, you know, that enables him to reproduce with a human. Mm -hmm. uh, and here we're talking about similar, uh, we're talking about golden particles being used uh, to prevent reproduction from taking place. Yeah. Now, I looked around and I haven't seen much follow up from this idea since the study was published in 2013. And I'm not sure what that means. I, I don't know if that means people have looked into it and it is not such a hot idea after all. Uh, no pun intended, or uh, maybe it's just waiting for somebody to do some more follow-up research. I'm not sure. But assuming the basic method is sound, even if it were never like extended experimentally to humans or anything, the authors are trying to make the case that, hey, having a less invasive method for effective contraception on animals such as household pets and domestic animals could be extremely useful. If you know you have a you have a cheaper, less invasive method of uh, of rendering household pets sterile, that would be a good thing for the world. Yeah, I just don't want anybody then stealing my cat and trying to melt her down for her gold. <laughs> Her precious gold. But whether or not gold-based thermal contraception for humans or other animals would ever actually go anywhere, gold nanoparticles show lots of promise in all kinds of other medical research, especially, as I was saying earlier, in things like the treatment of cancer. Uh, gold nanoparticles tend to be strong candidates for use within the body, again, because they can be used for all kinds of uh, diagnostics and targeting of specific tissues, but they're thought to be relatively non-toxic and tolerated by the immune system. If you just do searches on the medical literature, tons of stuff about gold nanoparticles studies will, will come up. Uh, there are tons of them, but just to pick one example of this kind of thing that I came across, this is from a couple of years ago, published by uh, Rustinahad at all in 2019 in PNAS, gold nanoshell localized photothermal ablation of prostate tumors in a clinical pilot device study. So this is looking at using gold nanoparticles to allow the thermal destruction, like targeted 
heating of cancerous tissues within the prostate gland or around the prostate gland, heating of that through directed near-infrared light. And this kind of thing seems to be a pretty promising method for destroying cancer cells without harming the rest of the body too much. And the authors point out that this thing can be really important for uh, for cancers such as prostate cancer because prostate cancer tends to, uh, well, as they write, quote, the prostate is near several vital structures such as the urethra, neurovascular bundle, uh, and whole gland treatments for prostate cancer can disrupt normal urinary bowel and sexual functioning. So having some kind of ultra-focal method for destroying the cancerous tissue without harming too much of the surrounding tissue is especially useful for organs like this within the body. And this isn't the only one. There are other organs like this. So, of course, I have to wonder if we're at an age of, uh, of dawning, uh, you know, gold nanoparticle or otherwise metallic nanoparticle-based treatments and diagnostics throughout the medical world. How will this manifest in science fiction adaptations of the Midas myth? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, I mean, the myth itself, like we were saying, it's so many ways to interpret it and look at it. It's already you know, ripe for just continual uh, reevaluation. Uh, but now we have new ways to think about the material uh, central to it, new ways to think about gold, new uses for gold. Yeah, it, it turns everything on its head. And of course, I also love the idea of, of a god taking on the form of gold nanoparticles like that. Yeah. That in and of itself sounds pretty rad. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody picks up on like uh, the studies like the control of nematode behavior via injection of – those weren't gold nanoparticles but metallic nanoparticles to like uh, heat it and make it move one direction rather than another. Surely somebody will take that idea way too far. Yeah. <laughs> I mean in fiction, not in reality. I'm not saying somebody's <laughs> going to create a nanoparticle mind control device. Seems well, implausible at the human level by the way. Well, in, as far as just injected metal goes, I mean, two examples of that from science fiction come to mind. There's, of course, the one of the X-Men movies. There's a scene where uh, uh, a prison guard's injected with some sort of a, a metallic liquid, which oh, then enables yeah. Magneto to manipulate him. Too much and, iron in your blood. Yes, yeah. yeah. Pretty good scene, as, as I recall. Oh, was yeah. that, I guess it was X2? X2, yeah. That was the one, that was the one with Brian Cox in it. That, that would, I remember oh, that would have been a lot of fun. Oh, he's so great. But then uh, also on the uh, the animated series, The Legend of Korra, which involves um, earthbenders, firebenders, waterbenders, but then of one variety of earthbenders are metalbenders, mm -hmm. who essentially have magneto-like control over metals. Uh, so there's manipulation of metallic-based poisons within the human body, which are, are pretty interesting. Hmm. But I don't recall them bending gold at any point. I could be wrong. Maybe maybe it happens in uh, like some of the comic books or something. But so I don't know. Uh, Avatar, Legend of Korra fans out there, if there's gold bending going on, let me know about it. Hey, explain the whole bender thing to me. I've never watched Avatar. I, d I don't know what it is, though. I've seen oh. people on the Internet talking about airbenders and other kind of benders. What are the benders? Okay, well, first of all, um, Avatar is a tremendous show. Avatar The Last Airbender is just mm. really great. I didn't watch it until this summer, and I watched it with the family, and it's just, just wonderful. Just a great show, start to finish. And then Legend of Korra is the sequel to it. But okay. basically, in this world, which is like... A, uh, you know, based it's it's not our world. It's some sort of a you know alien parallel type of world uh, with a lot of hybrid creatures. But it, and it's also based in in large part on um, on Asian cultures and Asian mythologies. Mm -hmm. But you have people selected 
you know, I guess kind of like mutants who are born with uh, the ability to control with their mind and with their body certain elements. So like firebenders can move fire around and use fire magic, essentially. Um, and then you have waterbenders, uh, the, the airbenders, and then the earthbenders. And this factors into like nationalities and politics. And then you have somebody that is the avatar. And the avatar is like the... Um, they're like the, the, I guess they're like a bodhisattva or something, you know. Hmm. They're, um, they're, uh, there's only one at a time, and there's like reincarnation involved, and they are able to bend all the elements, Whoa. and are supposed to be a force of balance in the world. So why is there a last airbender? Well, because of the. The, the 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 politics and the nationalities uh, so the fire nation tries to wipe out the air nation oh, um, I see. and they thought they had achieved it because the the diff, the, the different avatar is born uh, in a different nation so like one generation the avatar is born a firebender and then has to and then learns to use the other bending powers but then the next uh, avatar the next reincarnation will be born with uh, you know with a different starting ability wouldn't that be suicidal, though, if the Fire Nation wipes out the Air Nation because the fire needs air in order to, you know, sustain itself? Exactly. And that's why you need an, an avatar to come around and bring balance back to the world. Ah, I see. But also the show is especially Avatar. It's also really funny. It has some great humor in it. So it's not it's not all like just serious, but it it balances those two things well. It's it's it can be really funny. It can be cute, uh, but it can also be very seriously minded, has great drama. It's it's really one of the best animated series I've ever seen. This episode paid for by The Last Airbender. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, not really, but yeah. OK, you've convinced me. I, yeah, it's going on the list at least. All right. Well, uh, I guess that's it for for gold, though. That's all the gold bending we're going to do today. But obviously, gold will continue to come up again, either as a material related to something we're talking about. I'm sure it'll come up in future um, artifact episodes. And uh, who knows? You know, we could come back and discuss uh, the electronic side of gold in the future. Oh yeah, absolutely. Maybe we'll do a Weird House Cinema that involves gold. I'm sure there are plenty of things to choose from. There's a movie that's right at the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of what it is. It's got a gold monster. Well, there's the hideous sun demon. And then I think there's some sort of a, is, oh, there's Dr. There's Dr. Goldfoot in the, and bikini, the bikini machine. machine. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. Not a gold <laughs> yeah. monster at all. Yeah. The, the Dr. Goldfoot in the bikini machine is a movie where Vincent Price has a big machine. that's like the like Quiznos oven that you stick the sandwich in, except what comes out of it is like, I, I think, ladies in bikinis. <laughs> Frankie Avalon's in that. Yeah, he plays a secret agent. It's a comedy. It's like a, a parody film of James Bond type stuff. Ah, so he's, he's, this is the, the comedic Goldfinger, basically. Right. All right. Well, all right. Well, maybe we'll put it on the list. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, just remember core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesdays, Listener Mail on Mondays, Friday. That's our time to do uh, a little Weird House Cinema where we, we put most of the science aside and we just focus on cinematic weirdness, one film at a time. Uh, and you can find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcast, wherever that happens to be. If they give you the uh, power to do so, we just ask that you rate, review and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 